Charles Spurgeon introduced one of his sermons by reading a text and saying that he did not intend to do an exposition of the text, but he merely wanted to take it as a theme. And so many people have taken that and believe that Spurgeon was not really an exegetical preacher. Uh, that's simply not the truth. But nevertheless, I'm going to read a text, take this as a theme, as background uh, for what is more of just a, a as my uh, daughter-in-law suggested at lunch, is more of a uh, research paper than a sermon. But I hope that the logic of it will begin to dawn on you as we move through it. I want you to turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 3. I'll begin with verse 19 and read through verse 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, discussions of the subject of justice peer into the very essence of God and the relation of his creatures to him. The grand scheme of the world is the revelation of God's goodness, the outworking of his eternal being and its overflow, as it were, into the knowledge of other beings brought into existence for the very purpose of viewing loving and enjoying the triune God. When Moses requested a view of God's glory, God responded, I will make all my goodness pass before you. God's goodness was originally expressed in the freedom of the creature to enjoy everything in creation under the governance of sovereign prerogative expressed in law. The single positive prohibition revealed that the greatest enjoyment of God's goodness would be experienced in a proper understanding of the creature-creator relationship. Justice, in this case, was the creature's glad submission to the creator's goodness in defining the terms of fellowship. This daily fellowship prospered in the context of creaturely recognition of the transcendent excellence and consequent inviolability of divine prerogative. Adam, however, fell. The creature claimed the divine prerogative as his own and in so doing subjected himself and his entire covenantal posterity to a just curse of death in all of its forms. Then the elect nation, 
redeemed from slavery in Egypt, rebelled in the same moment God was revealing his just laws to Moses. Just before God gave the law a second time and renewed the covenant with Israel, in answer to the request of Moses for a sight of God's glory, God expressed his goodness beginning with the words, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Then as Moses took two newly cut stones up Sinai, God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, passed by him, so that the glory he saw, though true and pure, was not the killing vision that a full display would have brought. In this muted vision, Moses heard God's words, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This revelation of glory that abounds in goodness and truth presents the problem that only could be solved by the incarnation of the Son of God. How does God forgive when he will by no means clear the guilty? In the gospel, we find it stated this way. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Paul said, God set forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The reason that God honored Moses' prayer, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance, was the provision of a reconciler made in the eternal covenant of redemption. He would make a just recompense for the sin of the remnant of Israel and the elect of all nations. The necessity of the atoning work of Christ, yet future, kept Israel intact. The revelation of God's goodness, therefore, is exhibited in mercy and forgiveness as well as fully executing a due recompense on the guilty, consummates in the full execution of justice on the covenant representative of the people to receive forgiveness. God is just and merciful, and neither of these elements of goodness suffers in the manifestation of the other. The overarching reality of the divine human relationship, both prior to and subsequent to the fall, is justice. During his vicious treatment before and during his crucifixion, Jesus did not retaliate nor make threats, for behind the unjust actions of men was the just action of God. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Jesus knew that God was judging justly the sins of the people for whom he was dying. Also, he will judge justly the sins of those who remain unforgiven, for he will by no means clear the guilty. God's law indicates the perfect holiness and righteousness of God, which necessarily is expressed in justice. 
The relationship of the Christian to justice is one of infinite debt personally, fully paid by Christ so that, that if we have the grace of confessing our sins, he is faithful to his covenant promise and just in receiving the perfect ransom and redemption to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's revelation of himself in terms of justice and his salvation to sinners in perfect harmony with that justice calls on us to consider two applications of justice. One, how do we respond personally to perceptions of injustice toward ourselves and our fellow believers? Jesus, above all, knew that his unjust treatment in the hands of men arose from a purpose of justice in the decree of God. Peter gives Christ's suffering as an example of how we should endure wrongful suffering. Two, how do we respond to perception of injustice in culture in general and the world at large? We might not have the perfect answer to either of these questions, for we're dealing to some extent with the hidden purposes of God in both areas. But through what is revealed, we can seek to establish principles within which we can talk and act as Christian brothers and sisters. So we can be certain that there are only two points within the entire span of time when perfect justice will be reified among men. The first, as already indicated, is in the atoning work of Christ. Christ died, the just for the unjust, in a redemption designed to give perfect execution of God's wrath for all the sins of his elect. The last farthing was paid, and those who are thus ransomed certainly will come to repentance. It is this certainty that explains the present patience of God with the moral tailspin of the world, not willing that any of his elect should perish, but that all of them should and certainly will come to repentance. He will rescue the righteous man and hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment. Believers are received as just, though we are unjust, for per perfect justice has been done by God himself in bruising his son for our iniquities. The second point of perfect justice will occur when the final judgment comes and many will hear, enter into the joy of your Lord. And others will hear, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. Paul was confident in light of the perfectly just operations of the covenant of redemption that he would be given a crown of righteousness by the Lord, the righteous judge, along with all who are unflinching lovers of his appearing, both his humble appearing for redemption and his glorious appearing for the perfect consummation of all things. Peter gives more detail to this manifestation of perfect righteousness in depicting it as a day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The meltdown of this present heavens and earth and the presentation of a promise of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness makes its abode. Another striking revelation of the perfect justice to be enacted when Christ returns, Paul gives to the Thessalonians as they are in the middle of a time of persecution. Note the emphasis on righteousness and justice in which we may confidently hope, though no apparent relief looms before us in this life. This is evidence. That is, their present persecutions, their present afflictions are evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you.
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. Paul goes on to pray that God would make them worthy of his calling. Having introduced the section with the assumption that their suffering for the kingdom was indeed evidence that they would be considered worthy. We know that this worthiness is not the merit of eternal life gained only through the perfect obedience to the moral law. It does reflect, however, that the moral character of the kingdom is reflected in the developing character and confidence in divine goodness that is shown in a patient endurance of present suffering for the sake of future glory in the presence of God. I agree with the vision perceived by Eric Mason in his book, Woke Church, when he wrote, We can't let these issues of race make us forget that Jesus is coming back. We may think anger and picketing and legislation and hashtags change things, but there's a real revolution coming. He will set all things in order. Yet here we're seeing the equality of all people who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb and made worthy through Christ to be able to stand before God. They're not standing in themselves. They're standing in the Lamb. They're not proclaiming how great they are or what they did for Christ. They're standing and they're showing how worthy Christ is. I can approve that and applaud that and believe that. In between these two perfect displays of justice, the cross and final judgment, how should Christians look at the principle of justice and righteousness revealed in Scripture? The standard of righteousness and therefore of justice is divine law. Because righteousness is impossible without the love of righteousness, the crown of righteousness is given to those whose affections are constantly set on his appearing. The highest form of purely just living is to love God with all of our being. As the greatest of beings who is infinitely worthy of praise and whose goodness is immutable, God stands as the object of supreme love, both of benevolent love and of complacent love. To love him constitutes, therefore, the first and greatest commandment. Righteousness and justice find full exhibition in love for God. Precisely this constituted Jesus as the exalted Savior King in the Hebrews' application of Psalm 45. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The second commandment also calls for love of the righteousness that it expresses. Love your neighbor as yourself. John gives a perfect correlation to love and righteousness in saying, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he that does not love his brother. We are not allowed to bless God but curse men, for humankind is made in the image and likeness of God. Even within the commandment of love for neighbor, we find a hierarchical application of the duty related to divine righteousness as Paul relates the work of the Spirit to the moral love intrinsic to the law. He expounds love for neighbor as doing good to all people as we have opportunity, particularly those of the household of faith. 
This point is precisely what Jarvis Williams, an African-American New Testament scholar, affirms in saying, practicing racial reconciliation means that I regard a white Christian as my brother, but not an African-American who is a non-Christian. Hence, my love and service to my Christian brothers and sisters should transcend any love, affection, favoritism, devotion, and service that I offer someone from my race because Christians are a part of the family of God. Membership in the Christian family is much more important than associations with any ethnic group or club. The second great commandment, therefore, is to be kept purely and conscientiously with both benevolent and complacent love. Because the beings loved, however, are finite, both in nature and being, loving them is dependent on the being and excellence of God himself. Their excellence, even if sinless, is less glorious than that of God. Both benevolence and complacence toward them, therefore, arises from their own relation to God. Jesus introduces us to the intensified covenantal love when he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will, God's will, is my brother and sister and mother. Omitting any discussion as to how perfect hatred is a proper response to God's enemy, Psalms, Psalm 139.22, and is a reflection of God's own moral perfection, Psalm 5.5, Malachi 1, 2, and 3, we must recognize that sometimes love for God will result in separation from and resistance to fellow creatures. The regard we have for their ways compared to the moral imperative of knowing, following, and loving Christ will seem like hatred. These relationships, justice, righteousness, and love, with its perfect corollary, hatred of evil, inform us as we seek to investigate how the Christian responds to injustice in the world, both toward himself and toward others. We are faced immediately, however, with the sad reality of the fallen world, that we all presently live below the original and immutable standard of righteousness. Subsequent to the fall of Adam, we will note perfect justice only in the cross and in judgment. We still are governed by a law of perfect justice, but never experience its beauty and power until heaven. We have been given, therefore, certain accommodations to help with stability and to point beyond the accommodation to a better way, with the hope that as we learn Scripture better, as we love our neighbor more, that these accommodations will gradually give way to more and more perfect execution of the law of God. One accommodation is that civil government is given the sword. In an unfallen world, the sword would be unnecessary. Its present functions fall beyond the perfect standard of justice implied in the law in which all would love their neighbors as themselves and there would be no murder or other destructive evils. Nevertheless, taking a life becomes an obligation in a fallen world. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And then in Romans 13, whoever therefore resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. In an unfallen world, the execution of wrath would be unknown, either from the hand of man or from the hand of God. A second accommodation is in the provision related to 
divorce. And I'm not going to deal with every accommodation. These are simply uh, examples. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, etc., in such a case, she is not to be received back by him if she goes and marries another. The provision of divorce God used as an image of his attitude toward a disobedient Israel. Then I saw that for all the, house, all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. When this question arose in the ongoing attempt of the Pharisees to catch Jesus in some heresy, he said, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept and then contrasted it with the original intent of God in creation. Further accommodation is seen in the phenomenon of a person who has become a believer while the spouse remained an unbeliever. Paul says, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Peter instructs believing wives with unbelieving husbands to be submissive so that they can without a word, that, so that they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. A third major accommodation in the relations within society is the relation of master and slave. In an unfallen world, this relation would not exist and so would not have to be regulated. Slavery for the Gibeonites, Joshua 9, was an accommodation to their coexistence with the Israelites, for they had shrewdly gained a covenantal commitment from them to let them live. When the Israelites found out that they actually were close neighbors in the land that was to be cleansed of all its idolatrous people, they spared them but used them as slaves. Joshua said, Now therefore you are cursed, and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and waters, carriers for the house of my God. Though this accommodation was not the ideal of godly freedom, for the Gibeonites it was preferable to annihilation, and for the Israelites it represented a compromise between their covenantal promise and their failure to execute the command of God utterly to destroy them. Now while we do not find the Bible condemning the relationship of slavery, as in every case, an immoral institution, several biblical factors work as leaven in a fallen world to eliminate slavery in human relations. One, in Israel, the law says, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then the kidnapper shall die, and you shall put the evil from among you. Two, this specific law, combined with the word in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, serves as a foundation for Paul's listing of, of kidnappers or man-stealers in 1 Timothy 1.10, as a violation of the law and as a trait of the lawless and insubordinate. Three, the preface to the Ten Commandments, in which God identified himself as the one who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, says that the goal for his people is freedom. He wants them to have an internal manifestation of the law and of personal discipline and love so that it is not necessary that any kind of forceful restrictions be placed on them. The extension of this image into the New Testament as a purpose of the gospel gives a powerful incentive to walk by the Spirit so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For Paul's word to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7 also serves as a leaven to seek to serve God in freedom instead of in slavery. Paul says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. The condition of slavery can be seen as an assignment from God, and as an assignment it is to be viewed as that to which God has called him. If, however, legitimate opportunity for freedom comes, take it. For freedom is a better condition than slavery. In a condition of freedom, one may readily fulfill Paul's admonition, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need, Ephesians 4.28. Fifth, the admonition that slaves and masters both serve the same master in heaven, Ephesians 6.9, Colossians 4.1, are to consider one another as beloved brothers, Philemon 16. So it, it is because <clears throat> slavery is the most restricting, limiting, and personally galling relationship that exists in the fallen world that Paul and Peter give very careful and clear instructions to both slaves and masters. Perhaps the most succinct summary of the manner in which slaves were to conduct themselves is found in 1 Timothy 6.1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own master as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Does Scripture guide us to fitting responses when we are treated unjustly? In writing to slaves about unjust treatment from brutal masters, Peter said, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. Now, should we complain against Peter and think that he should have advanced rebellion as a justifiable action? Paul adds, exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And after Paul admonished slaves to serve their masters with fear and trembling, insincerity of heart, as to Christ, he told masters, and you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Even as we cannot hold the spouse sinful who is separated from the unbelieving spouse on the basis of the unbeliever's unwillingness to live in harmony, or the government is sinful that uses the sword in a responsible way to enforce the good and lawful and suppress the evil and unlawful, nor can we find the slave-master relationship per se as presented in the New Testament as intrinsically sinful. 
There are better options, of course, in all of these relationships. And our growth in grace and our growth in Christ and the growth of perception of the justice of law should move us in those directions, but these accommodations in themselves are not condemned. We're also instructed personally, however, as to how we should respond in truly unjust situations. When Paul was imprisoned, it certainly was an unjust situation. But he prayed that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He told the Philippians that his imprisonment had turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He requested to the Colossians to pray that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. He invited Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me his prisoner but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul expressed nothing but confidence in divine providence in these situations. When James preached strongly against wealthy farmers who fraudulently withheld wages from their workers, he warned them that the cries of the oppressed would certainly come to the Lord of hosts. This fearlessness in oppression was the spirit of personal indulgence and of, and of love, of position that consummated itself in the killing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The only righteous one was subjected to their perversion of justice. In light of that, he told those who were mistreated to be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Do not grumble against one another. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. In such biblical admonition, a fearful capitulation to the arenas of power in the world. Can we not really believe that when a thing reaches the ear of the Lord of hosts, it certainly will be set right, either here or in eternity. It will be most complete and satisfying in eternity. How do we respond to the theory of social justice and the remedies it sets forth for seeking just resolution of its perceptions of injustice? In what way does gospel justice from the response that a Christian has to unjust, uh, uh, relate to, uh, uh, to the response that a Christian has to unjust situations in the world? How should admonitions of patience and submission to providence inform the Christian response to the principles of social justice? How do we evaluate terms of repentance when we believe we have been wronged? How should we act when certain aspects of injustice are within our reach? How should we respond when others are beyond our reach? Does the gospel reality that we already have received perfect justice in the framework of infinite mercy in God's gracious provision of his son as a redeemer and that he himself will execute perfect justice on wrongdoers influence our perceptions of how justice is defined and sought in secular culture? In this life, the perfect standard of justice is the moral law. The whole of it is a schoolmaster designed to lead us to Christ and his redemptive work. Then it defines for us the constant standard for sanctification in our conformity to Christ, in loving God and also loving man. The ceremonial law is done away with, for Christ has filled it full in his own person and in his sending of the Spirit. The spiritual truths within the civil law were to be applied to the new people of God in the church. A good example of that is found in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1, where physical punishment in Israel is replaced by spiritual discipline in the church and the covenantal status of Israel is given over to a Gentile congregation. 
Under the new covenant, we do not argue for the institution of the first table of the commandments in civil society, but we do work to be leavened in the society by preaching the gospel. Any society that ignores the provisions of the second table will be a very unstable, dangerous, immoral, and by definition an unjust society. A society, however, only masks the true virtue that is indicated by a real engagement with the requirements of the law. In addition, we must realize that certain disciplined accommodations are made in a fallen world in order to obtain the highest level possible of safety, stability, and justice for the highest percentage of the population. How do we negotiate these treacherous waters in seeking justice in a fallen world for fallen people from fallen people? Before suggesting several areas in which the social justice movement imposes an alien agenda upon the principles of gospel justice, I want to suggest several points of which we must be aware if we are to come out of this discussion with more light than fight, more love than hate, more truth than caricature. We must first acknowledge that many of those with whom we take issue on this difficulty are professing and cordial evangelicals. We want a meeting of minds and a fraternal discussion. Second, with all candor, we must acknowledge that some of the difficulty has been created by the number of times that Southern Baptists, among other evangelical denominations, have passed resolutions concerning public justice, particularly concerning race, that only slowly have had any substantial effect in conduct and real resolution of cultural tension. Since 1845, a variety of resolutions was passed concerning the colored population. And then, after the Civil War, regular statements concerning evangelism, education, church planting were set forth. As early as 1923, Southern Baptists were prompting cases of conscience on these social issues in their relation to the evangelistic task of the church, complicated by the social gospel movement and its development of an aberrant non-evangelical theology. The report said, some people think there is some sort of conflict between social service and the gospel. But while denying an essential conflict, the resolution insisted Southern Baptists will never preach social service as a substitute for the work of grace in the individual heart. In May 1954, the Supreme Court decision abolishing segregation of public schools evoked from the much-admired senator from Mississippi, James O. Eastland, the comment, the South will not abide by or obey this legislative decision by a political court. Education cannot thrive in a climate such as would result from the mixture of the races in the public schools. And one of our Mississippi uh, representatives said flatly, the white and Negro children of my state are not going to school together. In 1961, in the midst of nationwide aggressive action seeking to implement the seven-year-old decision, a resolution of the Southern Baptist Convention was adopted just prior to some of the most sorrowful, disgusting, and eventually murderous manifestations of division, injustice, and hatred that characterized the mid-20th century. The resolution said, this convention in years past has expressed itself clearly and positively on issues related to race relations. Today, the solution of the race problem is a major challenge to Christian faith and action at home and abroad. Because Southern Baptists are the largest Christian group in the area where racial tensions between whites and Negroes are most acute, we feel an especially keen sense of Christian responsibility in this hour. We recognize that members of our churches have sincere differences of opinion as to the best course of action in this matter. 
On solid scripture grounds, however, we reject mob violence as an attempted means of solving this problem. We believe that both lawless violence on the one hand and unwarranted provocation on the other are outside the demands of Christ upon us all. We believe the race problem is a moral and spiritual as well as a social problem. Southern Baptists accept the teachings of the Bible and the commission of Christ as our sole guide in faith and practice in this area as in every other area. We cannot afford to let pride or prejudice undermine either our Christian witness at home or the years of consecrated sacrificial missionary service among all the peoples of the world. We therefore urge all Southern Baptists to speak the truth of Christ in love as it relates to all those for whom he died. We further urge that this convention reaffirm its conviction that every man has dignity and worth before the Lord. Let us commit ourselves as Christians to all that we can to improve the relations among all races as a positive demonstration of the power of Christian love. This tortured history of race relations and the lamentable tardiness of Baptists in the South to come to terms with the moral implications of racial prejudice left the principles of gospel justice and Christian discipleship threatened by clinging to sinful prejudices. Refusal to be willing to suffer, to be willing to suffer for and with others in real issues of moral justice and gospel justice can blunt the arguments that we might maintain against the driving philosophy of social justice theory. If we would evaluate social justice ideas as honestly and accurately as possible, none of us can turn the blind eye to the real and often radical, purely racist meanness that has often been a dominant force in society. Born and reared in Mississippi, 1946 to 1968, I came of age during the thick of some of the most blatantly racist activities in both society and church. I was nine years old when Emmett Till, a 14-year-old from Chicago, was lynched, beaten, shot, and thrown into the Tallahatchie River for supposedly whistling at a 21-year-old white woman. The accusations were apparently false. His murderers were acquitted by an all-white jury, though identified by three eyewitnesses, all of whom were black. I was 16, going on 17 and beyond, when sit-ins in Jackson, Mississippi at the Woolworth's lunch counter were part of a civil rights action. Jackson is 12 miles from my hometown of Brandon. These resulted in the rampant verbal insult, physical assaults, and eventual jail time for students from Tugaloo, some from Jackson State, and some from local black high schools, and others from out of state. The assassination of Medgar Evers in the summer of 1963, shot in the back by Byron De La Beckwith, uh, gradually brought to an end of the demonstrations, and you can understand why. On the weekend after the funeral for Evers, attempts to enter churches including some Baptist churches and the First Baptist Church of Jackson, resulted in their being turned away by deacons reading a policy set forth by the church. Finally, they were welcomed to an Episcopal church and sat quietly through the service, were welcomed by several of the parishioners, and were invited to return by the minister. One year later, the murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, civil rights workers, took place in Neshoba County, Mississippi, at the hands of the KKK. That was the summer before I entered college. This is the reality behind the statement on social justice that says believers can and should utilize all lawful means that God has providentially established to have some effect on the laws of society. A refusal to recognize that behind the movement for social justice 
uh, are real and often grotesque instances of injustice can lead to a failure to deal with the remnants of any kind of indwelling sin, including racism. My gradual coming to terms with the cruel reality of this environment was escalated by the 1954 World Series win of the New York Giants and a consequent lifelong intense admiration of the ability of Willie Mays. Second, the genuine, uh, the female woman of color from Laurel, Mississippi, Leontine Price, whose voice both in raw talent and in perfection gained by training has never, in my opinion, been equaled by any other. These palpable examples of clear superiority and highly competitive professional disciplines then began to combine with the most profound and lasting of chains agents, the doctrines of the gospel. I learned that all humans have descended from Adam and in him are corrupt and condemned, that all who come by faith into Christ are justified and are not under condemnation. All who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit will be sanctified, fitted for heaven, and eventually glorified. All this without respect of persons. Each of us should trace our journeys in these matters to uncover any remnants of social dispositions in this matter. Most of you will not have as far to go as I did. While we must be earnest in these matters in opposing real evil in society, we should also recognize that some principles in the social justice movement, if applied uncritically, will lead away from the Bible's concept of gospel justice and Christian discipleship and tend to substitute cultural engagement for gospel proclamation. Observations of certain inequalities, both real and supposed, legitimately make persons look for solutions. The appearance of racism, economic disparity, supposed prejudicial distribution of job opportunities opens the door to solutions that borrow from anti-Christian worldviews. The ideas of the Hegelian and Marxist dialectic that views the world in terms of a developing perfect synthesis drives social justice theory. For Hegel, the movement of thesis, antithesis, synthesis in an ongoing pattern is supposed to yield a reality in which a perfect equilibrium in social relations, political justice, development of arts and science, educational theory, and economic standing is achieved. Kant argued that these ideals are isolated in an unseen, a numinal world, and that all that we experience is the phenomenal expression of some part of the dialectic. Marx dropped the idealism of Hegel and opted for material reality as the only viable reality, since that was the only palpable phenomenon of human experience. All the rest is an operation of religion, a belief in God which is simply manufactured to relieve the existential stress between classes. Material equilibrium and equality will be the final synthesis and can only be achieved when the opiate of the people is eliminated. Pure Marxism encouraged revolution through class struggle, often violent. This was designed to speed along the process of the dialectic so that the ultimate synthesis will soon, uh, will soon come to be a present phenomenon. Others who accepted the dialectic did not want to destroy religion in the process, but to use it and its already embraced ideas as the tools for promoting the social changes envisioned. Do not reject the language of God and theology, but inject new concepts into their received meaning and put the energy of religion into the desired social revolution. 
Liberation theology was the master stroke of this theory. In the same way, when this philosophy is combined with a mental concept enforced by the biblical language of justice, reconciliation, original sin, oppression, we have fertile ground for the plausible ideology of social justice. What we actually have, however, is not the biblical idea of justice and its outworking in law and gospel, the development of Christian character through patient endurance, but an interpretation of the Christian faith that is infused with Hegelian and Marxist goals. We are called on to help develop this final synthesis, combined both the, combining both the ideal and the material as a matter of Christian discipleship. I think this presents several problems and alters the biblical worldview in several observable ways. When we, observe, when we embrace certain principles of social justice, we must be careful to distinguish what we accept as just and right in society and civil equality from our commission as proclaimers of divine revelation. If we defend the right of women to equal treatment in the marketplace, in the job opportunity, salary, education, positions of administration, we do not forsake or relativize the biblical standard that the gift of elder, bishop, or pastor teacher is limited in scripture to men, not based on past and cultural ideas, but rooted in fundamental doctrinal precepts. We do not argue that the rights of women extend to sovereignty over, quote, her own body in a way that legitimizes abortion. If we defend the rights of gay people to a wide latitude of rights in job market, social interaction, we do not reject the biblical teaching or the necessity of our preaching it and governing our churches in accordance with the biblical condemnation of homosexuality as unnatural affection that is evidence of a judgment on society and on individuals. We will not cease to call for repentance from the sin and warnings that that, along with all sexual immorality, embrace without repentance will come under the eternal judgment of God. The social justice principle of intersectionality presses toward unifying all those who identify themselves as oppressed as a single complainant and can easily press Christian teachers and churches into owning causes that are anti-scriptural. One need only read A Theology for the Social Gospel by Walter Rauschenbusch to realize how these issues can press theology toward pure eminence and social remediation and forsake the reality of transcendence, cross-centered redemption from the consequences of sin and the centrality of our hope in the transformation that comes at the appearing of Jesus Christ in glory. We don't want pie in the sky by and by. We want it done now. Social justice encourages exegetical accommodation that has unwarranted doctrinal implications. For example, reconciliation of Ephesians 2 is interpreted as a subjective attitudinal operation of the Spirit. In turn, this is seen as an essential and definitional element of the gospel apart from which one has not fully understood or embraced the gospel and includes racial reconciliation with all of its historical assumptions as endemic to gospel understanding. In the midst of some excellent and helpful exegetical work, the interpreter inserts the idea that the Gentiles were racially separated from God's promises, when the textual emphasis is that they were covenantally separated, separated by requirements of the ceremonial law. Well, this leads then to the necessity of stating that Jesus himself provided the model for this racial reconciliation in that he preached this gospel of peace to Jews near the promises and to Gentiles far away from these promises. Paul's argument, however, 
is that in reconciliation, an objective crosswork of Christ abolishes all distinctions necessarily consequent upon the ceremonial law and brings elect human sinners, both Jew and Gentile, and as one redeemed body into Christ's substitutionary, propitiatory death, giving all of them peace with God. God's enmity toward them, prompted justly by personal transgression and original corruption, has been removed in Christ. The writer states the gospel includes both entry language, repentance, faith, justification, and reconciliation with God, and maintenance language, walking in the Spirit, reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, loving one another in the power of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit is the gospel reality, because Jesus died for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, and, and so forth. He goes on to say, after an extended discussion of many ways in which the euangelion is used in Scripture, the writer concludes this observation acknowledges that justification is only one of the many important parts of the gospel. Enlisting nine elements of the redemptive work of Christ, overall an impressive synthesis of the benefits the believer has in Christ, he includes the ability and freedom to live in pursuit of love and the power of the Spirit and to thereby fulfill the entire law. Though many excellent items for theological reflection are included in this discussion, it promotes confusion between the doctrines of justification and sanctification. This view puts the work of the Spirit in transformation as a partner with the work of Christ in giving sinners a right standing before the law of God. While it is right to look at the work of the Spirit as inextricably united with the work of the Son and the work of the Father in salvation, as Reformed theologians have done for centuries, we must not confuse the standing before God granted in justification with the ongoing transformation effected by walking in the Spirit. It seems to me, had this writer not been driven by his special interest in social justice, he would not been prone to this compromising blend of doctrines. This would also explain why he does not think that early evangelicals and other Southern Baptists had really understood the gospel. Social justice takes advantage of our innate tendency to claim entitlement. In Mark 10, James and John asked Jesus for a place of prominence in his kingdom. If an element of the final synthesis is political equilibrium and perfectly shared authority, then a plausible consequence of social justice theory is shared authority, equal recognition of giftedness, places on the platform. One writer has spoken of the need for those who have white privileged status in the SBC to work towards shared leadership within the SBC. While its key leaders are white, these leaders have much they could learn from the many gifted and underrepresented minority groups in Southern Baptist life. We want, the writer says, our white brothers and sisters to share their leadership and influence with qualified black and brown people. When Christians deny that skin color currently plays a role in determining who assumes leadership and privilege within the SBC, they make the stain of racism more difficult to remove. Another writer says, people of color who are called to work within the SBC life often evaluate reconciliation based on the majority culture's desire to release leadership and influence. When SBC leaders refuse to relinquish leadership and influence, they, invari the, they invariably enforce the perception of placation in the corridors of marginalized hearts. Perhaps the greatest act of faith within our convention will be when SBC entities hire non-whites and give primary leadership to our convention. Is this not exactly the kind of posturing for an exalted position that Jesus warned against 
when he said, You know not, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Social justice theory encourages us to examine ways in which we might have been on the receiving end of injustice. We proclaim that we have not been treated fairly or that other people have criticized us, used references or made substantial suggestions about conduct that have offended us and should therefore be reprimanded in some way. We are therefore tempted to forget our infinite offense against God and the gracious status of justification that has been granted us by God, whose contention against us is truly and absolutely just, and whose reception of us is on the basis of the perfect combination of justice and mercy. The constant recitation of ways in which injustice, both apparent and real, has been done in our culture, particularly to our tribe, comes to occupy our minds with relentless pressure. It seems noble, for it has been provoked by an ideal of social justice, but quickly takes advantage of our self-protectiveness, our self-protective whininess, so that we lose the benefit of an admonition like, my brethren, count it all joy when you enter into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We learn to eschew a quality like patience, and we want public recognition of wrongs done in an ongoing way to all succeeding generations. Social justice theory encourages a spirit of vengeance. It looks for ways for persons who are not immediate victims of injustice to exact retribution from classes that have not participated in the remote acts of injustice. It, is, it does not encourage contentment with a conscious commitment to the reality of divine justice that the cries of the oppressed have come up to the ear of the Lord of hosts. Recently, a prolific poster of blogs said, it is one thing to call our congregation to the mandate of scripture to love all people, but another to characterize that as restricting Christians from giving an accurate critique of the status quo. If leaders within the SBC are bullying you into silencing prophetic black Christians, then you are being used as a tool of white supremacy. Do not become slaves obey your masters type preachers. Perhaps he should add, do not become children obey your parent type preachers, or wives submit to your own husband type preachers, or do not become a husband love your wives just as Christ loved the church type preachers. Social justice encourages a spirit of judgmentalism. Establishing moral absolutes out of issues that are not an element of the moral law. James 4.11 says, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Second London Confession says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines, to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience and to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. When persons are seen as righteous, who make apologies to those whom they've never offended, to repent of bias and prejudice that has not infected their own minds and hearts, to see their ethnicity, whether white, brown, black, tan, as imposing upon them sins they did not commit, this is to sit in judgment of the law. The law should have required it, so we would assume, certain actions and certain and social postures of people that it, in fact, did not require. Social justice 
simplifies the manner in which historiography identifies governing factors in historical movements. By simplify, I mean it engages in a severe reduction in finding the single issue which either acquits or condemns a person concerning the standard of social justice promulgated. The final synthesis has come, and the final synthesis becomes the means by which all historiography must now be, be done. Once that violation is discovered, the broader context and the more substantial traits and accomplishments of the person so investigated are ignored for the sake of the simple condemnation based on the principle of social justice that has governed the investigation. This can lead one to say that the evangelical movement in this country was also born with an environment of racial injustice toward black people. Those whose larger context and theological contributions gave gospel and biblical stability to future generations can be simply dismissed as slave-owning racists. So Christopher Columbus, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Robert Dabney, James P. Boyce, John A. Broadus, James Earl Ray, Sirhan Sirhan, Byron De La Beckwith, and Dylan Roof, all are seen as moral equals under the same censure. This reductionistic principle of historical investigation leads a person to say, I have more confidence in the Christianity of Martin Luther King than I do in that of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. It makes a person embrace the ideals of Malcolm X while despising the theological insights and spiritual theology of John L. Dagg. Social justice moves toward defining Christian ministry in terms of temporal safety and equity to the minimization of eternal concerns. Tabiti Anyabwele lamented this and explained its dynamic in his book on the decline of African-American theology. He said, Second, the emergence of high estimation of man's moral ability leads many to overemphasize political and social freedom. If man no longer needs rescuing from the effects of sin and the wrath of God to come, and if he is capable of ushering in a temporal utopia of sorts, then the logical focus of his energies becomes societal inequities and social structures. Salvation becomes a matter of reconstructing an efficient but an inefficient but salvageable society. Likewise, arguing for the inherent superiority of gospel privileges in Christ, the hope of our complete transformation at his return in glory, and the perfect world of love in heaven to the advantage of, uh, uh, in heaven to, to the advantages of some uh, standard of political equity is dismissed as escapism, an irresponsible neglect of the more pressing issues of present social equity. We should work for and live in hope that among Christians we can accept the view of reality and the admonition from James contained in the words, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat then it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord promised to those who love him.